Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the letter of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and extending to verse 4. This is the reading of God's Holy Word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We've seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we've now gathered in Your presence, having heard Your Word read, we ask now for Your Spirit to come to enlighten our minds and our hearts, to behold You, to see You, to be confirmed in the truth. We ask that You would shape us by this Word, that You would make Your own life and heart known to us through this Word, and that the fruit of this Word would be lives further conformed into the image of Jesus, lives further devoted to obedience to Christ, lives further filled with the joy of the Lord. Come now, open up this, your word to us, bless us with your presence, and accomplish all that you intend. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. looking so forward to this study. Some of you know, because I've had personal conversations with you over the years, of how much this book, the letter of 1 John, means personally to me. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture, there are certain books in the Scripture that the Lord has used mightily in our lives personally. All of it is His Word. All of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God might be equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16. All of Scripture that is true of. But some particular passages of Scripture we have deep history with. It has particular profound meaning for us. And this book and phrases from this book, verses from this book have had a significant impact in my own personal life. John writes this letter of 1 John as he tells us in 1 John 5.13 this purpose. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. Now John has already written this gospel It's been 
already spread about in the churches. He wrote it first, and he tells us in John chapter 20 that he wrote his gospel that we might have eternal life. That's why he wrote it. And he writes now the letter of 1 John that we might know that we have eternal life. And it's that purpose in 1 John that the Lord has used this own book in my life personally. Some of you know this. For many of you, maybe this would be a surprise, but I've not always been confident that I was a son of the Lord. I've struggled over the course of my life at various times with assurance of salvation. I've had doubts. Doubts about the truth of Christianity. I've had doubts about my own personal salvation. And it has been over the course of my life that the Lord has used this book, the book of 1 John, in many ways more than any other book, to bring assurance into my life, which I believe is the design of this very book. To confirm us in the faith, to give us a clear portrait of what it means to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's used this book in that way in my life, and I'm grateful to say that it's been years, quite a few years in my life where those doubts have not been present. Praise be the Lord. But I would imagine that some of you in this room can also say that doubts have been a part of the history of, of your life. Maybe the truthfulness of the faith has been doubted. Maybe your own personal grasp of, of salvation has been a part of your life. Maybe this morning, even as you sit here in the sanctuary, the question that's going through your mind is, is God real? Can I, can I trust the teaching of the Bible is what we've known and been proclaimed about Jesus something I can bank my life on? If that's you this morning, I want you to know that John, and through John, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's coming to you. He wants, he wants to communicate the truth of God in Christ to you that you might know that you have eternal life. That's his goal in writing this letter. What that tells us both about John and about our God is he is so aware of our condition He's so aware of our frailty. He's so aware of our tendency that we need to be reminded. We need to be reconfirmed. We need to be constantly stirred up because we are indeed, as Tony has already noted in the confession of sin, a people who are prone to wonder. John is writing to an audience of people who are prone to wonder who have indeed wondered. And he writes here to confirm the truth of Christ to them, and for them to return in many ways to the apostolic gospel that he had first proclaimed in their midst. Over the course of this book, John is going to put us through a number of tests. John Stott actually distills those tests down to three. He puts us through a theological test. He wants to know whether or not we have received 
the Lord Jesus Christ as he has been presented in the scriptures in terms of his person and his work and we are believing it with the whole of our hearts. Are we believing that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God? He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the Savior of sinners. And He is the Lord over all. And are we willing unashamedly to embrace that and to proclaim that, a word that John uses regularly here in the book of 1 John? Is that core to your faith in Christ? It's a theological test. There's going to be a second test, though, that he calls a moral test. And the moral test is that which you profess, is it also showing up in your practice, in your life? Are you one who is living obediently to the commands of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you practicing righteousness? We all know that this is a difficult test. Because in some way, shape, or form, every single week, we are and we aren't. And John is going to press on that. He wants to clarify. Are we those who are striving and seeing growth and success in the conformity of the image of Christ? Are we seeing holiness more and more befitting of who it is that we are becoming as we profess faith in Christ and obey His commands? Is that happening? That's a test that John is going to put us through. There's a third test, a final test, and it's a social test, a communal test. He asks us the question, do you really love one another? Do you really love one another? For he who says that he loves God and says that he loves another but doesn't display that love, doesn't show that love in tangible acts of sacrifice and service are in some sense raising question about whether we've ever really truly known the Lord. John, in a very real sense, is doing what Peter calls us to do, which is to make our calling and election sure, to examine ourselves, to see if we are indeed in the faith. In those three tests, he wants to accomplish really two aims. He wants to accomplish the aim for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and are trusting in Him and are manifesting the evidence of saving faith, but still doubt. He wants to grow us and encourage us in confidence that we are indeed in the Lord, that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to encourage that. But for those of us who profess faith, but whom our life is very often in opposition to that of which we face, and who are not striving by every means of grace that is given to pursue a life of holiness in the Lord, striving, longing, wanting, desiring, yes, falling, failing, going back to grace, but once again striving... For those who would profess faith, but that would not be the mark of their life, John wants to raise questions. John wants to lead you down a path of what I would like to describe as holy concern. He wants you to ask the question of your own heart in the presence of the Lord, do I truly know Christ? Or is my assurance 
unwarranted, unfounded? Is it on a shaky foundation? Maybe you've heard the phrase that a preacher's responsibility is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. If that's true of the preacher's call, then that's exactly what John does in this letter. It's for those who need comfort in the truth of the Scripture, but who are living a life that's all afflicted, He's come to give it to you. But for those, but for those who, are, who shouldn't be comfortable and are, He's come to unsettle you. He's come with a holy mission to unnerve for the purpose of bringing you to a place of peace, true peace, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. You know, it's that kind of unnerving unto peace that Martin Luther had to experience. Martin Luther, that great reformer who nailed famously the quote-unquote 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door in 1517, had for years previously, before he truly savingly came to know Christ, had been a monk, an Augustinian monk, who had pursued the Lord in, in, in ways that would, would baffle us and maybe even in some ways put us to shame in terms of the energy and the time and the resources that he devoted, the commitment of his entire life to the calling of Christ. And yet, he was certain, as he notes in one of his entries, he was certain that he was not a true believer. He said, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that that which I had done or would be doing would bring satisfaction to the Lord. I did not love, yes, I could not love the righteousness of God, for in it I saw my condemnation. Luther had for a long time, through good works, sought to gain a standing with the Lord, sought for that to be a foundation on which he related to the Lord, and he saw week after week, month after month and year after year, that it was an unstable foundation, a shaky foundation for any confidence for him to have that he was truly one of the Lord's. Until the day, by the mercy of God, he says in meditating day and night on the Scriptures, I heeded the context in the book of Romans where Paul writes, In it the righteousness of God is revealed. He who through faith is righteous shall live. He says, It is there that I began to understand that the righteousness of God is the gift of God by which the righteous live by faith, which is also a gift of God. And it was here that I realized that Christ was my all in all. And here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into the open gates of paradise. It was in the unnerving of what the Lord had brought in Luther's life that led him into the true peace that God had in store for him in the gospel. Luther grew up in a very religious place, late medieval Europe. Everyone was a Christian. 
I know a place similar to that. Some of us in this room would identify the place in which we live, its history and its legacy as a place where everyone in one sense, shape, or form, quote-unquote, is a Christian. Cultural Christianity has a hold and has had a hold for generations on this experiment known as the Southeast. That's why one of my friends in ministering in the South says that the challenge for the minister of the gospel in the South, the challenge for the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ in the South as he evangelizes so many is to first unsave people in order to save them. What he's describing there is an unnerving call to righteousness, to holiness, to the work of God, the portrait of what true Christianity looks like. And as true Christianity is presented in all of its glory, they begin to realize that there's not a match between what the Scripture says is saving faith and the life that follows and who they are and the life that they are living. That is a moment of great unsettledness. That is a moment of great unnerve. And it is a moment of great grace. Because it's in that moment where honesty and truth and awareness begins to catch hold of the heart. And for a moment we entertain the fact that we need to hear the gospel and understand the gospel afresh, maybe for the first time. I don't know the Lord's intentions in the working through of this particular book, but I... I do know that that is often His way. And it is that way that we will seek as we follow John's lead in this glorious letter. John wants us to know here in the first four verses that Christianity, well, it's not just a theory. And it's not just a perspective. And it's not just a nice idea to help us cope with a pretty difficult life. But the Christianity is true. It's true. Now I'm very aware in saying that I'm pushing against a cultural tide. We live in a time where truth is relativized. Where truth is a perspective. Where truth is the way you see it. Not necessarily the way I see it. What Christianity is claiming is not to be a perspective among perspectives, a way among ways. Christianity is claiming to be the way, the truth, the life. It is in that claim exclusive. And because of that, it requires an urgency to press in this truth upon those who would think otherwise. And John is doing that here in this text. And he wants us to embrace that and the reality of that truth. And he, he actually is speaking to a group of people who've been pushed away from that notion. And so he calls us here into Christianity, a Christianity that is truthful, one that we can trust. One that we can trust. And he does that in two ways in his text. He tells us first that the foundation of an assured faith is the truth. He says first that the foundation of an assured faith is the truth. Now if you look at this letter with me here in these first four verses, it's quite clear that this is an unusual letter. 
There's no typical salutations. There's no typical blessings. John here doesn't even identify his audience. John doesn't even identify himself. Though historical record, as we go back through the way in which this letter was used, the way in which the letter is written, it's quite clear that this is the Apostle John that's writing it. We'll actually look at some textual reasons why that's clear, even here in the first four verses. But if we first take these first four verses, we just take them at face value as we're entering into this letter, none of us would say this is a letter. Because it doesn't have the trappings of a letter. It doesn't look like a letter. He's just jumping into content. He's got something to say. And there's a sense of urgency to that of which he is, he is speaking to these churches, likely in Asia Minor. A letter that likely circled through a number of churches in Asia Minor. It's a number of clauses. That's why it's even weird to read. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen, which... Our eyes have looked upon which we've touched. The life was made manifest. We've seen it. We testify and we proclaim to it. That which we've seen and heard and proclaim. And still even in all that, we're not even sure what he's talking about yet. It's as if he's piling up dependent phrases after dependent phrases. He doesn't even get to the verb of this particular section until verse 3. What is it? Is he actually talking about Well, it's that urgency and that piling up of phrases and the various angles of evidence that he's beginning to give forth here in the first four verses of 1 John are meant to show us that John is a man who is in the midst of giving a defense. He is posturing this letter not merely as one of instruction, but one that is almost like an opening argument in a court case. He comes to us, if it were, like a lawyer, someone who's prepared his, his brief And now he's come to give his defense. Or he is a debater who's entering into an open and public arena and he's giving his open remarks. The repetition of the phrases. The setting forward of his qualification as one who should be speaking about these things. Giving evidence that points in the direction of the case that he's going to make is all defensive. He is here wanting to persuade. Why is John building a case? Why does he feel he needs to write in this manner? Well, I want you to turn to another passage in 1 John. Take your Bibles, turn with me, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 19, because it's there we get some indication of what it is that John is actually dealing with. There's a situation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 19. Look at what he says. Children, it is the last hour. And if you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour, for they have gone out from us, but they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. Now it's clear here in 1 John chapter 2 that a situation has arisen within this local church or churches where antichrists, false teachers who are speaking against Christ, have come into the midst of the flock, and some have been drawn away from the faith. Some of those who would have claimed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ have now left the fellowship of the church, and those in whom John is writing are those who remain. But think, be in their shoes for just a minute. Those who remain are deeply shaken. Those who were their friends, those in whom they loved, those whom were once professors in the same faith in Christ that they are, are now gone. And there are questions. 
questions in the mind of the audience in whom John is writing to. They're experiencing uncertainty. Question, have we been duped? Have we been deceived? How can we be sure that the Jesus that was proclaimed to us by John from the beginning is exactly the Jesus that we should believe? What about these new teachers, these antichrists? It's not the language that they would have used for themselves, obviously. These are persuasive teachers, new teachers who have come into the midst and they've won a hearing, an audience, and they're leading people astray. Undoubtedly, their popularity has grown. John is now deeply concerned, and he writes as a pastor seeking to recover straying sheep and concerned about the shaken sheep who are within this body who need to be reconfirmed in the truth, that indeed their faith is not in vain, that they have indeed believed in the very Jesus that John himself is proclaiming. Now that question arises then, what is this false teaching? What is this false teaching that these antichrists are advancing? Well, while you have your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to 1 John 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. John gives us a little indication here. 1 John 4, verses 2 and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess, Jesus is not from God. This is, notice, the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. So what is the false teaching? Are these false teachers, these Antichrists, they are teaching that Jesus has not come in the flesh. It could be, as some scholars argue, a kind of Gnosticism that there was a spiritual reality of Jesus, but there wasn't a physical reality of Jesus. He wasn't actually human in the way that we would define humanity. That the fleshliness of Jesus is not something that was real. And this false teaching, making its way into this church, John wants to address directly and addresses it in a way that deals with the fleshliness or the humanity of Jesus. And notice how he starts. Verse 1, which was from the beginning. Now, because you're all Johannine scholars, it raises the question, this word beginning, some of you are going back right now in your mind to the Gospel of John, and you're remembering the opening verse of the Gospel of John. Remember what it is? In the beginning was the Word. What is John doing here? With the opening of his letter, he's saying, remember the life and the ministry of Jesus that I've already told you in a prior volume. The Gospel of John that I wrote, I want you to go back to the Jesus that I've already proclaimed to you, the Jesus who is the Word made flesh, John 1.18, who came and dwelt among you. I want to tell you about that Jesus. Now, of course, when John does that at the beginning of the Gospel of John, in John 1.1, he also is hearkening back to the beginning of the book of the of the Bible itself in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a huge biblical theological note from the very beginning of this letter. John is saying, the one who spoke creation into being, the one who made matter, the one who made flesh, is the very one who came and took on flesh. Who came from God and was born of a woman. Who came to live a perfect life and to die a death in our place as our substitute. That Jesus 
who was the one from the beginning, is the one who's entered into creation. It's that one that I want you to be reminded of. He was from the beginning. And I want you to know this about him, that he was real. He was real. That he entered time, space, and history. That there, this is not just a story. This is not a grand fiction. This is not merely something we tell ourselves to feel better. This is real. And in fact, Christianity, the foundation of the faith, is built upon the truth. A, an assured faith has to have the truth. If it's not a truth, then we're all wasting our time. You know, the Titans are going to begin here in just a little bit. Some of you are going to miss the opening of this game. I hate to break it to you. Why are you here instead of there? Because this is true. It's more true and it's more important than anything else that you could be doing right now. This truth, this reality, this Worship this God and what it is that He's accomplished. He's pressing in upon us the realness. Now that's really important because I tend to believe that we as believers in the 21st century often read our Bibles as if we're engaging cartoon characters. Abraham's and Moses's and Joshua's. Surely, you know, these are felt board characters for sure. But are they real? Is this story real? Is this Jesus real? Yes, He's real. And John wants us to know that this is absolutely essential to the establishment of an assured faith. I'm amazed at what sometimes just little statements of truth will do to assure us and bring us peace. Little statements of of truth that will assure us and, and bring us peace. Sometimes I will say things like even in the midst of a worship service where I'll remind you that right now as... We're together opening up the Word of God. God, by His Spirit, is present with us right now. He's here in this room. He's dwelling in your heart. And isn't it amazing, like little statements of truth, and how in those moments, peace, settledness, assurance, strength, begins to take hold of your heart. John says this truth, if that was a lie, then you're deceived. But this is true, and you need to rest in that. You need to relax into that. And John here is saying it is true that Jesus is real. And I want you to see the evidences that he gives. He says, I can tell you that Jesus is real because I was there. I was there. Look at what he says in verses 1 and verses 2. We heard him. We saw him. We looked upon him with our eyes. We even touched with our hands. He's speaking to those who in Asia Minor who had not had the privilege of being in the presence of Jesus the man as he walked upon the earth and now there are teachers who have come in and have swayed them against the true fleshliness, the full humanity of the Lord Jesus. And John is saying, oh no, oh no, I was there. I was there when he preached the sermon on the mount. I heard him tell the parable of the prodigal son the very first time. I remember when he said to the Pharisees before Abraham was, 
I am. And they sought to kill him. I remember the sting of his words. When he rebuked James, my brother and I, when we sought to get the right and the left hand of his throne in heaven. And he said us correct. I was there when he cried out in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, just a little ways away from him in the anguish of his soul towards his father. I stood at the cross when he looked at me and my my eyes locked with his as I stood next to his mother Mary and he said to me, Behold your mother. I heard him. I heard him. I saw him. I saw him take five loaves and two fish. And I saw him feed 5,000 people. And then later, 4,000 more. I, I was there when he walked on water. I was there with a word when he calmed the seas. I was there on the Mount of Transfiguration. When with Peter and James, I saw the pre-incarnate glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had seen Him in His humanity. He let me glimpse into the divine that was behind the curtain of His flesh. I heard Him. I saw Him. I touched Him. If you think your eyes deceived, then the sense of the touch of flesh confirmed that He was really man. I embraced Him. I rubbed shoulders with Him. I patted him. He patted me. We walked along the way. We talked. We joked. We... I was there at the Last Supper, reclining at the table, and I leaned upon his breast. That's this John. That's this John here in this text. And so he says to these who are doubting the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, he is a sin saying, I I defy finding a better witness for who Jesus really is than me, his disciple, who walked with him as one of the closest who ever knew him. Don't you remember Peter, James, and John? The three of the closest, the triumvirate of all of the disciples, and John himself, the one who is referred to in John 19 as the disciple whom Jesus loved, as some scholars call his very best friend. John saying, I defy you finding someone else who could give you a clearer and more stronger testimony to the very nature of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he uses such strong language as testify. That language of testify there in verse 2 is that I, in a sense, am sitting on the witness stand. Call me into testimony. I want to go into a court of law and give you the most accurate and truthful testimony. What is a witness? Well, a witness is someone who saw something, who knows something, who now has come to say something. He is one who can testify. He's one who can proclaim. Because wasn't it Jesus at the end of the book of Matthew who commissioned John along with the disciples to be the very mouthpiece by which the witness of Jesus would be bore after his ascension as he grants to them the power of the Holy Spirit? John says, this is me. This is me. You can trust me. You can trust the witness that I give to you, that it is indeed true. I want you to think with me. When someone says, hey, listen, I know someone really important. I know someone really important. And then they tell you the name of the person. 
and you think, wow, that person's really important. What happens in your own mind's eye when someone who knows someone who's really famous or really important? What happens? Well, the very person who tells you that in your own mind and heart becomes a little bit more important. You look at them and think, well, they must be, I didn't think they were very much actually, but um, now that they know so-and-so, uh, that, that, that is you know, points in their court with regards to how important they must be. And then what do you begin to do? If you're interested in the person that they know, you begin to ask them questions. How do they live? Where do they vacation? What are their kids like? You want to know about them. John says, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. I am the ordained mouthpiece of the Lord who has been commissioned for this very purpose. Do not let interlopers come in who do not have the commissioning and do not have the knowledge of who Jesus is and to paint for you a portrait that is opposed to the truth. Don't let that let you stray into the darkness, into waywardness. You see, John is saying, that the strength of the assurance of our faith is utterly dependent upon the truthfulness of what we believe about Jesus. The strength of the assurance of our faith is utterly dependent upon the truthfulness of what we believe about Jesus. Now you know this practically. When you forget the gospel and you forget the truthfulness of Jesus and you start listening to your own voice, don't you begin to experience a shakiness, an anxiety, and a worry, and a fear? When the cacophony of voices that want to get into your head from the world begin to tell you, you must do this and that and this and that in order to be approved of, in order to be successful, in order to accomplish all the things that you need to accomplish of what it means to live a healthy, wealthy, and wise American life. Doesn't it make you nervous? Doesn't it make you worry some over time? And when you fail, doesn't it defeat you? Doesn't it discourage you? And then when the, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in and grace and the gospel begins to flood, once again, your mind's eye, you come into the temple, you inquire in the temple. And as you inquire in the temple, the gospel is preached. And once again, you're assured and comforted. And you go, I was so foolish to believe all of those false things. That's exactly what John is addressing. That's exactly what John is addressing. And boy, the pressures of our time and period aren't even worthy to be compared the kind of pressures uh, that, that in the first century would have been, or in the first century would not have been worthy to be compared to the pressures that we experience here in the 21st century with the amount of voices and the amount of information, the amount of people vying for you to believe their gospel. That's no gospel at all. John is saying, come back to the truth. Come back to the truth. And I think the question being raised here is, do we love the truth? Do, does our professed love for the truth match our engagement and commitment to reading the truth, studying the truth, submitting ourselves to the truth, doing what the truth tells us to do? Does it, does it match? That's the question that John is raising. The foundation of an assured faith is the truth. But secondly, the fruit of an assured faith is joyful fellowship. The fruit of an assured faith is joyful fellowship. Look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John here is saying to us that truth 
as critical to the foundation of the Christian life is not, in this moment, he's not describing it as the purpose of the Christian life. The truth's purpose is for fellowship. A fellowship that is both vertical in our relationship with the Lord. It starts there, doesn't it? When we sinned and fell short of the glory of God and came under the condemnation of the Lord because of our sin, our relationship with the Lord was separated. We had no fellowship with the Lord. There was only division. Jesus, through the curtain of His flesh, has come in and received the just judgment for our sin. And He has now become the only mediator between God and man, defeating the death, our greatest enemy, and raising on that third day, now interceding for us. He has opened up a way for us to have fellowship with the Lord. And that fellowship has opened up a horizontal fellowship within the body of Christ that we now share in fellowship with each other because we together share in fellowship with the Father and the Son. John, here in this particular context, is saying the work of the gospel is to open up fellowship with the Father and the Son and to open up fellowship among the church. But what has the false teachers done? They have told a lie and have broken the fellowship of the churches in Asia Minor that John is writing to. They have broken and hindered the intimacy that they would experience with God. They are a people who are wrecked now with doubt and with the painful division of lost relationship. Why? Because they followed a path of falsehood. John says, I want you to know that if you're walking in the way of the truth, it opens up intimacy with the Lord. Don't you know that? When you experience this truth really dawning upon you, really bringing you alive, isn't there a sense of peace and intimacy and joy that begins to come? into your life and when you have forgotten it or when you've gotten off isn't there a sense of being lost wandering as it were in the wilderness and when you're in sin do your relationships go better or worse they go worse there's greater division there's greater trouble there's havoc but when there's reconciliation when there's peace when there's grace that reigns what begins to happen there begins to be a unity a fellowship what he describes here by that beautiful word koinonia a word that we, we, many of us in this room know, it's a, it's a significant word. It's, it's not a light word. It's not coffee and donuts. It's not the few words that you have in between the pews on Sunday morning. It's a word that Luke uses at the end of Acts chapter 2 to describe those who believed the apostles' teaching were together and held all things in common. For those who didn't have homes were being given homes by those who had homes. Those who didn't have food were being given food by those who had food. There were those who were selling their possessions to meet the needs of those who had needs within the body of Christ. That was koinonia. That was shared life. That was common existence. And what John is actually saying here is Jesus' fellowship creates that kind of fellowship within the body of Christ. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? Isn't it true that when we begin to see what Jesus has done for us, we begin to say, what my, what's mine is yours and you can have it if you need it? Isn't that what we begin to do? We begin to hold things more loosely. We begin to see everything as an opportunity for ministry. We begin to actually submit our own ambitions and goals 
lower down uh, the, the pecking order and we begin to put people in front of ourselves. It begins to even worry us how much money we're giving away. It begins to concern us that all of our time is being spent in certain ways and other things that the world would consider more important are going by the wayside. You see, it turns the world upside down. That's what begins to happen. That's the context of what he's describing is Koinia. And you think, well, how in the world is that going to happen? Well, if you believe that the, the, the Son of God, who was the one who spoke creation into being, who has the supreme authority over heaven and earth, emptied himself of his prerogatives and privileges, took on human flesh, was born uh, of Mary in a manger in Bethlehem. And who lived a life where he said, foxes have holes, the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Who was willing to give all of what he had from the heavenly places to us and take on himself all of our cursing in order to make us full, he became empty. If that's who Jesus is, then if you trust him, that's who you start becoming. And John says there's no other way but that way. You see how John is beginning to press us into the test already? Tests of faith. Tests of moral character. Tests of communal love. Because what he wants is a joy-filled fellowship. He wants. He knows that his joy is tied to their joy in the gospel. Let me ask you this. What, would, what really brings you joy in life? What, what really, really brings you joy in life? Like, if you're just ponder, if you're honest with yourself, is it seeing others come to know the Lord? Is it, is it John's phrase? It's watching your children walk in the faith or walk in the truth. Is it the eternal and spiritual and real? Or is it the flimsy and the failing and the won't last till tomorrow things that we think are so important now. You see, this book of 1 John is meant to get inside of our hearts in that way. To expose us. And then to show us the Jesus who even paid for all of that for you. All of that. He paid for that too. And today... He says, come unto me. Come unto me. All of you who have bought into all kinds of false theologies and have lived the, the ideals that aren't ideal and you thought they were, come unto me. I will show you the way, the truth, and real life. For that's who I am. As we make our way through 1 John, I want you to pray to that end for you I want you to pray to that end for us. That the Lord would make that reality known in our midst. And that we would begin individually and corporately become a people who look and act and are Christians. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, teach us the way of Christ. Assure us in his finished work and compel us into the call of his mission. Comfort us in our affliction. 
Afflict us in our comfort. Do not let the evil one eat up the seed of the gospel. But instead, let it plant deep, deep into our hearts as we make our way through this letter. And let the purposes of John, which are your purposes, be real to us, that we might know that we have eternal life. And that in Christ, we might pass the tests. Assure us, strengthen us, guide us in this path. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.